Hello, my name is David Bush. Welcome to Bush History. You are listening to my sixth podcast in my American History Review Series. It'll cover the years 1904 to 1929. This podcast and the rest of my podcast reviews were first broadcast on YouTube and are still available on YouTube as full-length videos. You can also find additional information at my website, www.bushhistory.net. That's B-U-S-C-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y.net. I hope you find this useful. Thank you. Hello there. So continuing our walk through history, we're going to start this review in 1904 with the Roosevelt Carler. Teddy Roosevelt comes to power with the death of William McKinley, and he's big and he's bad and he's all over the globe in terms of his approach to things. He believes the United States should be the policeman of the world. And one of the first things he does is he sets his sights on, he sets his sights on Panama. He wants to build the Panama Canal. But he needs a reason. He needs a way to get away with it. And he issues something called the Roosevelt Corollary, which is simply an interpretation. It's a further interpretation of the Monroe Doctrine. And if you remember, the Monroe Doctrine basically said that Europe will stay out of the Americas, America will stay out of, the Euro- out of Europe. But now what's happening with the Roosevelt Corollary, we are coming out and saying we will be the policemen of the Americas. So this is going to allow us to intervene. And the first thing it does is he, it allows us to intervene in Colombia, where the Roosevelt administration supports a, a coup, if you want, or a revolution amongst the Colombian rebels who live in the northern part of Colombia that we now know as Panama. So we support that revolution, and what happens is Panama gains its independence. When Panama gains its independence, the first deal they make is with the United States government to build the Panama Canal. So it's no surprise there. We supported their revolution. Now we're going to provide jobs for Panamanians to build their canal. And that's going to begin in 1904. Also, this time period is also known as the Progressive Era, all of the Roosevelt administration followed by the Taft and the Wilson administration ending in 1921 is also known as the Progressive Era. So we're going to start building the Panama Canal. And then in the exact same time period, in 1904, we're going to get the Northern Securities case in which um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt is able to go after after J.P. Morgan's Northern Securities Company, and he's going to use the he's going to use the Sherman Antitrust Act, and it's going to be the first large-scale business concern monopoly that will be dismembered or broken up as a result of the Sherman Antitrust Act, and it's a huge blow. It's a huge blow for monopolies in big business in the United States. Now, the thing to understand about Roosevelt: Roosevelt doesn't believe that monopolies should be broken up. He believes they should be controlled; that they're actually useful. Um, it's an interesting interpretation of things, but he believes that the government's idea, the government's role is to control them and to somehow make sure they benefit society. So in any case, Northern Securities will be taken apart as a result of the Northern Securities case. In 1906, we'll get the Hepburn Act, continuing with the progressive idea. The, progressive, the Hepburn Act is just basically going to regulate shipping rates. It builds off of the earlier idea of the Interstate Commerce Act and the Hepburn Act is going to regulate shipping rates a little further. Uh, the jungle occurs in 1906 by Upton Sinclair, and that's the whole expose of the Chicago meatpacking industry. There are many muckrakers. Upton Sinclair is one of them. Lincoln Steffens is another one. Jacob Reese is another one. And they're all exposing various societal ills. So in any case, in 1906, the Hepburn Act is passed. 
we, then we're going to get the writing of the jungle. The jungle is going to lead to the Pure Food and Drug Act and the Meat Inspection Act because in this book, in this um, semi-fictional account called The Jungle, uh, Upton Sinclair deals with families that live and work in Chicago and they work in the, the meatpacking industry and he exposes all of the horrors of the meatpacking industry and the way our food is handled and the way immigrants are handled in the meatpacking industry. So we're going to get the Pure Food and Drug Act and the Meat Inspection Act out of that. Moving along, and in 1909, Roosevelt will leave the presidency somewhat reluctantly. He doesn't want to leave the presidency, but he made a promise that he considered his second term, which actually begins in 1905, because remember he take, took over from McKinley in 1901. That would be his second term, and he would run no, no more. So his hand-appointed uh, successor, William Howard Taft, becomes president of the United States, and an early problem we have is the Ballinger-Pinchot affair, and it's over-distribution of public lands and their use and development. Gifford Pinchot had been the Roosevelt appointee, and Ballinger was a Taft appointee, and they are battling over this use of public land. And it's a major black eye for Taft, because Taft is looked at as the heir apparent and successor to Teddy Roosevelt, and one of the things that happens very early is we have a, you know, a lot of people think it's a misuse of public land, under Taft. So, while this is going on, people are starting to second-guess the vote for Taft. Why? Why would they second-guess the vote? Exactly. They second-guess the vote for Taft because Taft isn't behaving a lot like Roosevelt and they thought he would. As it turns out, Taft is a good guy, but not well-suited to the role of presidency because he's very legalistic, he's very cautious, whereas Roosevelt was just brash and Roosevelt did what he thought was right, and Taft is taking a step-by-step -step approach to things. And a lot of people think that he's being controlled a little too much by the Republican Party. So nevertheless, in 1912, Teddy Roosevelt's going to come roaring back, and he wants to be President of the United States again, and he's going to run for the Republican nomination. He doesn't get it. The Republican faithful stay with Taft, and Taft gets nominated. Well, Roosevelt storms out, you know, I want to be president. He storms out, and his supporters are progressives, and they form something called the Bull Moose Party, largely because of Roosevelt's tenacity and his personality. So, in the 1912 election, we're going to have William Howard Taft running from the Republican Party. You're going to have Teddy Roosevelt running from the Bull Moose slash Progressive Party, and Woodrow Wilson running from the Democratic Party. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize who's going to win. Woodrow Wilson will win because Taft and Roosevelt split the Republican vote. So Wilson comes into the presidency in 1912, and we have a Democrat win after 12 years of Republican control. Well, one of the first things that occurs in Woodrow Wilson's presidency are the passes of the 16th and 17th Amendments. These are very progressive legislation. 16th Amendment will be income tax, and now there will be an income tax, very low income tax, by the way. I think it's about 13%. But nevertheless, it's the first federal income tax in the United States. The same year, we'll get the 17th Amendment, which allows for direct election of senators as opposed to being picked by state officials. And we will also get the Federal Reserve Act, which sets up the 12 Federal Reserve Banks in the United States. And that's going to allow for better distribution of funding and money throughout the country because those 12 banks will be spread across the United States. It's really a very good idea, and it still exists today. Their number one goal is to regulate the money supply, and they do it largely by controlling interest rates through something called monetary policy. When there's too much money in circulation, the Fed raises interest rates. 
when there's not enough money in circulation, they lower interest rates to encourage borrowing. Now, that's interest rates from the Federal Reserve to the banks. But if the Federal Reserve lowers the interest rate to the banks, then the banks can indeed turn around and lower the interest rate they charge to their customers. Moving forward here, in 1914, we'll get the beginning of World War I in Europe with the whole Franz Ferdinand issue and the explosion in the Balkans. We're not going to talk too much about that because that's really a global studies or world history point. But nevertheless, there's a question, what will we do? Will we enter World War I or not? Obviously, if Teddy Roosevelt had won in 1912, we would have entered immediately because he was a staunch supporter of entering World War I on the side of the Allies. But nevertheless, we don't. Uh, in 1914, the Clayton Act is passed. Woodrow Wilson gets the Clayton Act through Congress. And the Clayton Act is a more aggressive Sherman Antitrust Act. Whereas the Sherman Antitrust Act turned around and said combinations and restraint of business are illegal, the courts then turned around and said, well, that means unions. Unions are restraint, restraint of business, and they certainly can be. What the Clayton Act does is very specific, and it says monopolies are illegal. So it gives a lot more teeth to antitrust legislation. In 1915, the Lusitania is sunk. We all know something about the Lusitania. It sails from New York to England. And um, the Germans had warned us about putting anyone in harm's way and putting people in the war zone. And they had submarines. They were going to use them. But nevertheless, the Lusitania sails anyway. And when the Germans sink the Lusitania, the Germans turn around and say, well, the Lusitania was carrying weapons. It was carrying tools for war that we were going to give or sell to the British, and of course the Americans and the British say, no, 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 that doesn't happen, we wouldn't do that. And then the Germans say, well, why would you put tourists in harm's way? And we really didn't have a good answer for that one. And it wasn't until the late 1990s, I, I forget, but I want to call it 1998, when Lusitania is actually found, and they find that indeed in the whole of the Lusitania there are weapons. So the Germans are actually right, and we lied. Won't be the first time, won't be the last time. So nevertheless, a lot of people say that the Lusitania was the main reason we entered World War I. There's no logic behind that, because we don't enter World War I until 1917. If the Lusitania was the main reason we entered World War I, we would have entered in 1915. So the Lusitania becomes an underlying cause, for sure. It angers Americans, definitely, but it's not the, it's not the final reason that we're going to enter World War I. Also in 1915, on a seemingly different plane, a complete, on a more social level, we see movement of the Klan, this is the Ku Klux Klan, from the southern part of the United States to the northern part of the United States, following the new immigration pattern. So the Klan becomes an equal opportunity hater. It's not just anti-black. It now is anti-people who don't speak English, anti-Catholic, anti-Eastern European, anti-Asian. Any group you want, the Klan is now going to protect white Protestant values in the United States. In 1916, the Germans do it again. They sink the Sussex. The Sussex is a French, um, it's a French ship. It's a ferry that's going across from England to France. The Germans sink it. And then the United States is in outrage, and France is in outrage, and the Germans turn around and say, listen, we're not going to sink passenger ships in war zones. But they did it again anyway. So, in 1917, the Russians are running out of money. The Tsar is unable to really adequately handle things at home. And the Tsar is going to be in a fix. So in, in 1917, Tsar Nicholas pulls out of World War I. And then, of course, Russia is going to have two revolutions. 
the fall revolution, the spring revolution, the fall revolution. The fall revolution being when we have Lenin, Stalin, and the boys. But nevertheless, Russia pulls out of World War One, and at about the same time, because of the Zimmerman note, which would be a good idea if it was here. But nevertheless, the Zimmerman note is that some people think contrived message from the German high command to the president of Mexico, not the president of the United States, asking Mexico to ally themselves with Germany should war break out between Germany and the United States. In return for that alliance, the Mexicans would get the entire southwest part of the United States that they lost during the Mexican War. Now, a lot of people dismiss this as not being possible. We don't know if it's really possible or not, but we do know that right before World War I breaks out, um, we're having this whole Pancho Villa incident with General Pershing on the American border between the United States and Mexico. So Mexico has some reason to fear incursions into, into their territory by Americans, and this idea of an alliance with Germany at least is somewhat plausible. But whether it's true or not doesn't matter. It did work in turning American opinion against the Germans on a stronger stance, and it did work on getting us into World War I, and we entered World War I in 1917. So the question becomes, are we significant in World War I? Good question. We are very significant because we entered in 1917, and in 1918, World War I is over. November 11th, 1918, this is 11-11-11, the 11th month, the 11th day at 11 o'clock. And horribly, the toughest fighting of World War I begins at 9 o'clock that morning, when, yeah, when, when um, generals on both sides have this huge charge of soldiers. Now, the soldiers don't know that the armistice begins at 11 o'clock. So these guys are fighting, thinking it's another major battle of the war, when it really is a last-minute land grab. A horrible carnage, horrible carnage. And after the war, some of the commanders were disciplined and some were court-martialed for ordering this charge to begin. Anyway, so we'll also get the Treaty of Versailles in 1918, and most of us know something about that. This is the treaty in which we'll get the League of Nations, where some, not many, but some of Wilson's 14 points will be put in play, and where Germany has a war guilt clause and will be blamed for World War I. Really not fair, considering they didn't start it. President Wilson doesn't like this, but he's going to come home and he's going to try to sell the Treaty of Versailles to the American Senate. Senate ratifies treaties in the United States. But in the middle of trying to sell it, Wilson has a stroke. And there's significant Republican opposition to this in the first place. Wilson thought we needed to sign the Treaty of Versailles so we could belong to the League of Nations and be part of this world peacekeeping organization. Well, we don't sign the Treaty of Versailles. We make a separate peace instead with Germany. And Wilson's stroke is part of the reason because he really can't get out there and campaign. He also didn't take any Republicans to Europe as part of the negotiations at Versailles. So the Republicans are not happy with Woodrow Wilson at all. Anyway, the 18th Amendment will be passed in 1919, which outlaws the sale and distribution and manufacture of alcohol, but doesn't, doesn't outlaw consumption of alcohol. So, that's going to be a problem as we head through Prohibition. In the same exact year, we'll get the Red Scare and the Palmer Raids. The Red Scare and the Palmer Raids, this is the whole, my God, the Soviets are coming, the Russians are coming, and they're going to take over the United States. And Attorney General Palmer led this Red Scare in which we tried to turn around and avoid the United States of Soviet influence. In 1920, we will finally get what women have been wanting for a long time. We're going to get the 19th Amendment, which basically allows women's suffrage. Now, 
It sounds like a great idea, the amount of voters are going to double in the United States. The downside is the women are going to vote like their husbands. So if they're going to vote like their husbands, what they're really going to do is just double the numbers and not change much of the outcome. And that's actually what occurs. On the technological side of this, we'll get the first radio station in Pittsburgh. So now radio is used during World War I will now be used during peacetime and the beginning of radio as a form of entertainment will occur. And we will get the election of 1920 in which Warren G. Harding wins with his promise of a return to normalcy. And that simply means a return to traditional Republican values. And that's not going to go well in the 1920s. You're going to get a period of deregulation. Less government is more government, very traditional conservative, very traditional conservative values. Harding will die in 1923 from natural causes. Most people think he wasn't much of a president. He was a womanizer. He didn't pay a lot of attention to people. He did what he wanted to do. Silent Cal becomes president in 1923, continues the Republican mantra. And in 1924, we will get the Revenue Act. The Revenue Act cuts taxes across the board, so now we're unfunding our government. We're unfunding our government. We're deregulating business. Business is overproducing. There's no regulation on lending. The Klan is rising in 1925 from its highest level, 5 million in 1925. It's not all bad. Charles Lindbergh in 1927 will fly across the Atlantic, which is a pretty good thing. But also as part of that nativist feeling and that Red Scare feeling in 1927, Sacco and will be executed for a crime they probably did not commit. There's very little uh, evidence connecting them to the robbery, except that Sacco owned the gun. That was the same kind of gun that was used in the crime. We are overproducing to be all at this time because earlier in the decade, because of the baby boom, farmers were able to sell their food, manufacturers were able to sell their production, but that's all ending at the end of the 1920s. The stock market is being fueled by something called margin buying. Margin buying is simply the idea of borrowing money to buy stocks. Well, if you borrow money to buy stocks, you can buy a lot more stocks driving the price way up. But it's borrowed money, which means no one ever sees it, so it's really fake money. In 1928, Herbert Hoover wants to continue the Republican Party of the 1920s, and he will be elected in 1928. So now we have three Republican presidents in the 1920s, all going with the idea, the, the idea of deregulation and low taxes, and it's going to all fall apart in 1929 when the Depression begins and the stock market crashes. The margin calls will occur. Brokers are going to ask for money back from people who borrowed money to buy stock. They're not going to have the money and we are going to cycle down into the Great Depression. And Herbert Hoover may go down in history as one of the unluckiest presidents in American history. He's going to preside over this time period in which the economy is falling apart. And since people think with their wallets, in 1933, they will vote for Franklin Roosevelt.